Hi, my name's Alex Kelly, co-founder of Bright Flag, and this is In-House Outliers, a podcast where I interview those who've taken unconventional paths and challenged conventional notions of how in-house legal should operate. I am delighted to be joined today by Aline Bustiles to share her story. As you'll hear, Aline is an international business executive with over 30 years of experience. Here at Bright Flag, we had the pleasure of getting to know Aline during her time at Philips, leading procurement of legal services. Thank you so much for joining us today, Aline. Happy to be here, Alex. Thanks for inviting me. Well, Aline, let's start at the beginning. You came from an entrepreneurial family. What was your first working experience? As a kid, my parents had a, a furniture factory and a shop, so they made the furniture and then sold it in the shop. Later on, I think when I was around 16 years old, my father started a wooden floor factory. And I have to admit, I have always been at my father's side watching how those machines work, even since I was a little kid. And then when he started that wooden floor factory, I helped him with the launch of the, of the company, set up the factory. And then during my holidays and weekends, etc., I, I just worked in the factory. Not so much, much on, at the administration side, but really at the heart of the, of the factory. So cutting the woods, working with the machine, the packaging, you name it. And then next to this, I think I was around... I was 19 years old or something. I worked also, I ran a restaurant of a sports facility during the weekends and did some catering as well. So always been a busy bee learning a lot. The strong work ethic and a, a perspective on, on kind of owning and running a business kind of ingrained in you from a, from a very early age. Why did you choose then to go on and study economics in, in college? I was interested in so many things and I knew I was good in mathematics. I knew I was good in languages, but to be honest, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do when I grew up. So I thought economics would suit me well because it contains so many aspects, so many areas. So yeah, when I was 17, I started applied economics at university in Leuven in uh, Belgium. But to be honest, I expected a lot more practical experience. Theory is fine, but for me, I need to get it into practice. So I decided to switch to a bachelor degree with more focus on fiscal law, analytics, IT. So I chose that path and that drive for practice combined with the implementation of based on theory is still there for me in, in everything I do. I love learning new, new things, putting new things and new theories into practice. So that's still my drive, actually. I couldn't agree more, Alina. It was probably one of my greatest frustrations with that disconnect between a very theoretical approach to legal education and then the reality of practicing law that I went on to experience working in a, in a law firm a number of years later. The two just seem to be fairly disconnected. And I, I certainly think courses that can, can be more practical in their leaning and give people a clearer understanding of not just the theory, but how this impacts businesses in practice or provision of legal services, whatever the case may be, I think is, is a really important part of the puzzle. I'm curious, did you then decide to go back into the family business or what was your first job after college? 
I've always helped in the family business during the weekends and, and holidays, etc. But I actually started at BBL at the end, I think it was the end of 94. Headquarters was based in Brussels. Then later on, it became part of ING. And I started there in the finance department of IT. And very soon after, I became the financial controller uh, within the IT department, supporting the, uh, the CIO. I understand you spent over 18 years in totality at ING. How did your role evolve over that time? People I worked with, they really gave me the opportunity to challenge myself, to grow and, and do what I love most, change with a specific focus on the soft side, solving problems, analyzing stuff, learning, making things easier, faster, more efficient, etc. And most importantly, together with people. That's what gives me energy. And within ING, I, I, I was able to work in so many different environments like finance, procurement, IT, operations, sales, legal, etc. But also in, in different countries, cultures, and with a wide range of, of roles. I was a business controller, I was program manager, I was first line tax advisor. So many things always part of the business. So even when I was a financial controller or a procurement lead, I really was in the business, helping also with optimizing their organization, their processes, etc. And I think doing so many things enriched me as a person. And I feel really privileged that I had that opportunity, especially also with those different cultures, different languages, etc. It helped me a lot. That's really interesting, Aline, and something I was speaking about with a recent guest on, on the podcast, Jane Ingles, who leads legal operations at, at Stripe. Something we were discussing was how important it was for both of us at an early stage of our career to work in large organizations that gave us a really good training and grounding and helped build our skill set in ways that proved to be useful in terms of things we went on to do. And it sounds like certainly ING was that type of environment as well, that there was a lot of room to, to grow, to work in different areas of the business and build that skill set. Were there any mentors at that stage in your career that you learned from or took things from? It's hard to say because the learning for me is a constant factor. I mean, in, in everything I do, I learn from every conversation with people. It's a bit of an addiction, really, learning. If I have to name maybe one person, I would say it would be Pien Osterman, who is now CEO of Lazy9, which is a, an IT services company. I think her drive, her, her values, the way she is able to inspire and motivate people, uh, challenge you, gives you the responsibility, but tries to challenge you to get the best out of you. That's something, for me, it was a great example. I loved working with her. We worked together in the management team in ING, in procurement. And I still go to her if I want just a conversation on, on future or career or whatever. So, yeah. 
I think that's a great observation, Aline, in terms of my experience of great leaders. A lot of their approach stems from a clear set of values and principles that inform everything that they do. And it enables them to kind of turn their attention to different subject matters or, or businesses or business units and, and make decisions in the right way and kind of bring people on, a, on the journey with them. For instance, in, in hiring processes and over indexing on the kind of practical experience people have had or kind of functional knowledge. And at a senior level, it's, it's as, as important or more important to understand, well, how are people going to make decisions in certain scenarios? Yeah. What are the values that inform how they, how they solve problems? It, it seems like you, you had somebody there that you learned from that had that approach. And you then, after ING, went on to start your own business. And, and we've spoken about your kind of formative experience working in your family business and, and the ongoing role you had played with that. And and then having that experience of working in a, a massive organization like ING, what prompted you to, to go back and start your own business then? When I left ING, I had some, I, I had some offers, pretty good, good ones actually, but I really wanted to take some time to think about what, what's next. And at the same time, I wanted to do something with my passion, my hobby, and, and that's Mallorca, or one of the passions I have, the island Mallorca. So I launched a company, Mallorca Pure, and it provides tailor-made activity programs on the island because people know the island from the beaches and, you know, sun, beach, sea, that stuff but there is so much more in Mallorca you have so much the mountains culture so many things to do so I wanted to be able to share that with with people so we like I said provide tailor-made programs so if people go on holiday or for a specific business event or whatever then I support them give them ideas or organize the, the programs on the islands I also import their wines. They have amazing <laughs> wines, but 99% of the wines don't leave the island. So I import their wines to the Netherlands, to Belgium and Luxembourg. It's more of a hobby nowadays, but I really like it. Yeah, and then next to this, I started at the same time my company for coaching and project management. And that's actually also how... I entered into Philips. So that's the story. We were talking off air and, and Mallorca is my family's holiday destination of choice over the last 10 years. I've, I've spent a lot of time there and looking forward to going back now that travel is becoming more feasible. But you might have to expand your wine export business to Ireland. We don't have the <laughs> opportunity to enjoy the Mallorcan wines here. I certainly have enjoyed them in, in Poyenza and Mallorca on our holidays there. But it's a, it's a beautiful part of the world and, and I, I couldn't agree more. There's so much there to offer. The mountains, the, the history of the island, the food, beyond just the beautiful scenery and beaches. Obviously, we, we got to know you working with you closely at Phillips. What attracted you to Philips, first of all? I was asked for a freelance consultancy job for Philips on an RPA project, so robotic uh, process automation. And for me, Philips is, it was a new environment, healthcare, totally new. And the role itself at that moment in time, or the RPA deal was 
kind of outsourcing, but then outsourcing to robots if you want. So some parts I already knew it, I could bring in my experience on the outsourcing part, but the robotics part and, and the Philips environment part was new. So for me, that was what attracted me to, uh, to start this consultancy job. I always want to make sure that I can bring value, but I want to learn something as well, because that's what, what gives me energy. And, and so that's why when I started Philips, but soon after they asked me to join Philips on their payroll. And I really had a hard time deciding because I loved being an entrepreneur and I wasn't quite sure if I wanted to leave that behind. But the two roles they, or it was a combined role that they uh, proposed. So being a procurement business partner for insurances and legal, two areas where procurement wasn't really allowed to intervene with the stakeholders. I knew it was going to be challenging. And so I decided to accept it and was looking forward to that adventure. It, it had a lot of challenges. So I was up for it. It's interesting that you, you joined working on robotic processes and then heavily focused on working as a business partner with the chief legal officer and on legal service procurement. And it's it's so interesting, Aline, that that breadth of experience that you have and that ability to, to switch contexts and add value in very large organizations, running your own businesses, working in very different types of programs. What are your thoughts about the procurement of legal services specifically and how it differs from other areas of procurement you've worked in previously? I was lucky to be able to support the, the legal team, not just on the procurement side, right? So supporting the management team also with analytics, reporting, helping with their uh, matter management process, new ideas on spend management, etc. were some of the additional aspects in that, in that job, luckily. And especially once the new legal ops uh, director came on board, Michael van Leeuwen, who probably met yourself you know together we we could achieve so much more and a lot faster than than on my own so we jointly set and implemented the outside council spend management program and a strategy and program we improved the processes the tooling analytics reporting etc so it was a a broad package going back to the, the the sourcing part of the job first of all there's a huge difference between procuring services and products. Product, procuring products is generally much easier. The requirements are set, it's, it's, they are very clear. It's easier for the stakeholders to, de to define their uh, requirements. You can ask for samples, you can measure quality, etc. And then basically it comes down to price. That's the key decision factor which simplifies the procurement processes. Services, on the other hand, they are generally more difficult to purchase. They're harder to specify. Stakeholders have a lot of difficulties to specify what they really want. Quality is now and then very subjective, but nevertheless, it's a key decision factor. 
You usually have service levels agreements where you measure also KPIs, etc. can take corrective actions if needed. Although many of these characteristics also go for legal services, it's a slightly different beast, I must say. The dynamics of that legal space is, is so different. Legal services are a highly complex professional services that are very costly per unit, but also per case. One case can you know, last for years and the effort and, and the outcome is very unpredictable. Also, how do you measure quality? I mean, you can't estimate or, or what, an, what the outcome would have been if you would have taken another law firm, etc. So it's very difficult. Taking corrective actions, yeah, probably too late. It's very expensive. And at the same time, procuring legal services is more about limiting the risk, I guess. So, and that reflects also in your pricing mechanism. While you have rather similar and simple price structures for regular services, with legal services, we always try to find the right pricing mechanism for a specific case based on the goal of the case, strategy, the risk, the most likely scenario of, of outcome, etc. Those are totally different factors than with other services. And of course, the pace. Sometimes you have a new case and whether it's weekend, holidays, whatever, you have to act. You don't have a choice. So that's also a different factor. And I think another one is demand. You can't predict demand, right? With some of the products that I have bought in, in the past or services as well, you can plan, you know more or less when it's going to, uh, to happen. With legal services, like I, like I said, you know, tomorrow you can have a lawsuit and you have to act. So, Aline, I think that's such an interesting perspective for our listeners. And given your depth and breadth of experience, it's sometimes not immediately apparent to people in the legal department how much of an anomaly legal can feel like as a spend category to the rest of the business, to finance, <coughs> to leadership. And there are obviously very specific reasons why it is harder to control and predict costs or run procurement in the way that you would for a product or, or other service lines like pure agency spend, where you can just set what you're going to spend a month on it and, and plan a year ahead. Given all of that, what are your thoughts on how best to manage relationships with outside counsel? It's always important that you be open and honest to your suppliers, whether or not it's about legal services or about uh, other services or products, being open and honest is very important, especially for instance, when you want to run a, a tender, an RFP, don't involve suppliers, especially not law firms, when they don't have a standard chance, right? And if they were not selected for a specific case, take the time to explain why. They deserve the feedback. They put a tremendous amount of time and effort in this process. So, and they can learn from their feedback and it eventually is a positive impact, of course, to all parties for future events. I think what's 
important, especially with illegal uh, services, is that the main relationship management, the primary relationship management lies with your legal departments. They work day in, day out with, with those law firms. So the first level will always be in, within the legal department. One of the bigger differences as well between types of suppliers and, and in this case, outside counsel is that you are negotiating mostly, most often with the, with the partner, the senior partner in the firm. And like I said, they work daily with your internal legal counsel. So I believe it's crucial that your stakeholders knows what's going on from the procurement side with those law firms, that you are aligned with them, how you approach law firms, what's going on, uh, what do you want to achieve, etc. before you, you talk to those law firms. That always helped in my experiences and I think procurement also shouldn't aim not only to be involved before the start of a of a matter of a case but also during and after the services they can be a, a great contact towards the law firm for periodical reviews discuss overall on on the business the performance of the law firm, etc., and especially what we can do as a client, as a company, to make work of the law firm easier, and they can focus on the strategic part. So I think in that re relationship and communication towards the outside counsel, it's important, like I said, to be honest, open, and make sure in the background your internal legal counsels always know what's going on and what you're going to do. I couldn't agree more. And I think one of my observations over the years working in this space is that the relationship as trusted advisor has to sit with corporate legal team, the lawyers themselves that are working day to day with the law firms, but that the kind of the evolution that we're seeing is that those relationships can become stronger, more transparent, more underpinned by data. There can be greater alignment about ensuring the right firm is being used, as you said, for the right type of work at the right price. And that rather than the kind of the legal leadership, the assistant GCs, the senior lawyers within the legal team feeling completely protective over those relationships and trying to keep procurement or legal operations at arm's length, there's a great opportunity to kind of bring the type of skill set you have, for instance, to bear in having better analytics, having better data, having your expertise in informing not just the kind of initial kind of budget conversations, but inevitably scope can change in legal matters and opportunities there to kind of work as a team on, on those initiatives. But, but at the highest level, I, I think the shift we're seeing is procurement, legal operations, legal leadership, working together to kind of define a better type of relationship with the law firms that is transparent, that is collaborative, and that there's a lot of communication back and forth, sharing of data, and that the legal team can really benefit from those skills that you have and those experiences that procurement, for instance, has in other areas in informing their approach in how they manage those relationships. Do you think it's an oversimplification, Aline, to say that procurement are only focused on cost control? And I know 
your role at Philips was much broader than that and, and more holistic. And, and it wasn't singly looking at, at legal through the procurement lens, but more generally, do you think that is an oversimplification of, of how procurement thinks about professional services spend generally and, and legal spend specifically? I think a lot of people would, would agree that's what procurement thinks about, only uh, cost control. And yes, there are still certain procurement organizations that look only at that cost side. But I, like you said, I would strongly promote looking at the bigger picture, taking into account, you know, the full cost of a value chain, but also the benefits, the risks, etc., Price can, of course, be a determining factor, but quality and especially with legal services, it's, it's all about risk. And I know that there are companies where procurement is involved, for instance, within legal uh, departments for negotiating your hourly rates, for instance. But what does it say, right? I mean, you can negotiate very hard on those on those rates, but if then at the end they staff, they overstaff, whatever, at bottom line, it doesn't help you. So looking at those hourly rates is, is one thing at the cost side. But I've noticed, for instance, if your strategy is to increase your sales and you have a lot of IP, then maybe it's it's not so bad if uh, the legal spend increases because, because that means you're having lawsuits to kick out your copycats in the market and that way you can increase your sales. So like I said, looking at just at the cost side is in my opinion, not the way to go. And that would indeed be oversimplifying the job of procurement and supporting and, and working together with the business towards their strategy. I, I couldn't agree more. And, and when I've observed the relationship between procurement and legal leadership working best, <clears throat> it has tended to be where procurement has a level of situational awareness and understanding has a broader perspective where they understand what is the most important thing from the business's perspective and a very simple example if Philips was acquiring doing a massive acquisition that was the most material transaction for the year procurement should not be driving the legal team to use a five-person law firm that has the lowest hourly rate that would obviously not drive the best overall outcome for the company so kind of comparing apples with apples understanding that trusted advisors and outside counsel who should charge a premium for great service exist for a reason you have to understand that context of strategic priority value to the business level of risk in informing which provider should be used in which context but all that being said there are so many kind of competencies that an experience that procurement have that can undoubtedly improve the approach many legal teams are taking today in, in how they're doing things. Absolutely. And you know, those in, in-house councils, they don't like these difficult decisions or discussions with the, their outside council on pricing, etc. They want to talk about the content of a case and make sure that they, they win a case or whatever they, their strategy is. They're actually happy that someone else can take over that side and they can, they can be involved in the background and they, sh- they surely are, but let them focus on that 
keeping that good relationship with the law firms and then procurement can do the tough negotiations. I think that's such a such a good point. And something I've spoken to Stephanie Hammond about before, who who used to lead legal operations and outside council management at, at Barclays Bank and is now with, with Norton Rose Fulbright leading their consulting practice. And, and she spoke about that, about how legal operations can play that role, but also can be bringing data to the legal leaders who are making these decisions that maybe they didn't have visibility on. And you can overcome things like recency bias, where the lawyer might think, well, I'll use the firm I use for the most recent matter, but not have access to data to understand who has done the yeah. most of these matters well, for us before what has been our, our level of satisfaction with each of these matters that they've done. And, and, and that's the role that kind of capturing data, having analytics, bringing that to the table to help them manage the relationships. But then, as you say, maybe taking some of the more difficult conversations that they don't enjoy having off their plate as well is, uh, is enabling them to, to focus on the things they do best and, and add the most value for the business. I'm really interested to understand, you've obviously had such a, a long and successful career and, and worked in so many different areas in really large companies and smaller companies and financial services and Philips. How do you think about the kind of key competencies and skill set that you have that have helped you throughout your career in all of those different scenarios? I think one of the, the main competencies that helped me throughout my, my career is having that entrepreneurial skill set <laughs> skill set i think but also my finance and legal background finance actually in, in every role as a project manager or whatever role you need to be able to do some business cases also for legal i did business cases and simulations based on possible outcome of a, of a case to see what type of pricing mechanism could could fit best. So I think my finance and background helped me in, in everything I did. Analytical skills, the data crunching, but also analyzing processes and people and the environment and being able to interpret that information to come up with new ideas. Yeah, it, it helps a lot. So finance, legal, entrepreneurship, analytical skills, and I think above all, the soft skills. I mean, people are the core of a, of a company. And if I look at the, at the legal space, it has been so important for me to be, be able to read between the lines, understand their concerns, the, the risk, what's at stake in a case, and being able to... <laughs> To persuade them to work together and see that there are a lot of advantages in, in bringing in some procurement expertise. So the people side is very important as well. I think ne next to competencies, of course, you have values. We've spoken about it in the beginning. My key value is integrity in life at home as well as on the job. And yes, now and then you need to take some difficult decisions, but that's part of life i guess yeah maybe another thing during my 30 years of working i always worked with the principle keeping in mind or questioning myself every day are we doing the right thing for the organization and sometimes 
that also brings up the discussions or you challenge some of your team if you don't feel that it's the right thing for the company. So you can have those discussions, but it really was my guidance over that 30 years working. I share a lot of what you've just said there, Aline. I, I, I think will set anyone working in a business context apart and, and set, set them on a path for success. I think many of our listeners are, are legal operations professionals are working in the kind of legal procurement, legal technology space. And as you highlighted, having that kind of fundamental skill set and understanding of finance is critical, particularly when you're working with, with lawyers, but that is not their, their strength. And, and they're looking no. to you to, to ensure financial management, outside council management, the relationship with the finance team is working as it should. So I think that is certainly in our experience, a kind of a, a foundational competency that will set somebody on the, on the right path. And I think something you touched on earlier in our conversation that resonates with me is people who have a kind of a constant learning mindset and are continually looking to develop new skills throughout their career. And I know when you were at Philips, you went through a number of training programs and certifications. And I think having that mindset and attitude, I think in and of itself sets people up for success when they move into a new area like legal, and they're trying to understand the full context of how the general counsel or chief legal officer or head of legal operations thinks about their role or thinks about their relationship with law firms. And as you so eloquently articulated, having that broader business context and, and then that informing the approach that you take is, is so, so important. A lot of great advice there for, for our listeners. And I've certainly really enjoyed our conversation, taking a huge amount away from it. I think the final question for me unrelated to your incredibly successful business career, what do you enjoy doing in, in your spare time? I love spending time with my family. I mean, watching the kids play hockey or uh, watching a movie together, cooking together, uh, support with their homework. And I mean, during COVID, there was a lot of teaching as well, maths and whatever, <laughs> economics. <laughs> so I really love spending time with them. Next to that, I think sports is important for me and something that fits quite well with my learning addiction, I think is exploring new, new places, adventure. And yeah, while exploring new places, always a bit on the edge, like when we were in Israel, you know, go to the border with, uh, with Syria or Lebanon or whatever. Yeah, so. I, I suspect the kids couldn't have found a much better maths and economics teacher. I, I likewise had some of the, the challenges of having kids at home during the pandemic, ours are three and two so not so much the the teaching as, as as trying to keep them occupied but I think one of the benefits from my perspective I've spoken about before the pandemic was just having more time at home with the family not jumping on a plane or rushing in and out to the office and being more present <laughs> which I think has has been one of the fundamental changes that's happened for everybody and Hopefully, Aline, our paths will cross at some point in the future. Maybe in Mallorca, we can we can share a nice glass of Mallorcan wine. Who knows? <laughs> yeah, but thank you so much for joining us. This has been fantastic. Thanks for having me. I'm Alex Kelly, host of the In-House Outliers podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Brightflag, an AI-powered legal operations platform where corporate legal departments gain visibility into operations maximize productivity and engage with outside counsel strategically.
If you like this episode, then you can find more information in our show notes. If you want to hear more, then you can also find more episodes at brightflag.com forward slash legal hyphen operations hyphen podcast. Thanks again for listening to the In-House Outliers podcast. We'll see you again next time.